This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Kia ora. You're about to listen to another episode of The End of History, brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society and hosted by me, Shannon Burns. The End of History is all about socialist and working-class culture, history and politics, and each month it features at least one special guest, music, reviews and more. Please enjoy. Kia ora koutou. Happy New Year. Happy summer or whatever season is applicable to you. Welcome to the End of History, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. My name is Shannon Burns. I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society and it is my pleasure to be back with another episode, the first of 2024. Some things are going to stay the same this year. Some things are going to change, and you'll probably already have identified one change, which I'll talk about in a bit. But first, a few words on the Canterbury Socialist Society. So, the Canterbury Socialist Society, or the CSS, is of course a socialist organisation based in Ōtautahi Christchurch. The CSS presents regular educational and social events, it publishes the biannual magazine The Commonweal, and supports industrial and other actions in and outside of Ōtautahi. The CSS is affiliated to the Aotearoa New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, or the NZFSS, which you'll hear a bit more about soon. Basically what that means is we're in touch with comrades in other parts of the country, namely in Otago, Wellington, and there are some members at large too. You can visit socialistsocieties.org.nz to learn more about and join the CSS or another socialist society local to you. You can also send an email to canterburysocialistsociety at gmail.com. I'll have more to say about CSS events at the end of this episode, but right now, a few things to introduce. And let's start with that new intro music made just for us by Lucas Mayo, member of the Canterbury Socialist Society, also known as Pickle Darling. Thank you so much, Lucas. For some time now, we've been rolling with the original intro music, which was put together by the former host of the show, Mark Balderstone. It worked at the time, but we can do better now, so I'm very excited about that. Thanks again, Lucas. Much like last year and the year before, this year's episodes of The End of History are going to feature an interview with a special guest, some songs, some resource reviews and some updates about events and other things that might be of interest to socialists. Unlike last year, we have a whole extra half hour to fill, which is also very exciting. And so what that means is that there'll be a few special segments, one of which I'll introduce toward the end of this episode. Having said all of that, this time of year can be a bit of a pain, 
Not everyone wants to sit down and talk politics when the sun's out. Some people who like cricket are going to cricket. There's other stuff to do. So interviews proper are going to start from next month's episode. But don't fear, because I have a third and perhaps final, we'll see, New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies Conference session to share with you. That was a bit of a mouthful. Basically, in October 2023, over Labour weekend, the CSS hosted the first ever New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies Conference. We invited a special keynote speaker, Daniel Lopez, and arranged for a series of talks on various aspects of socialist history and politics. You can see that over the past couple of episodes, I've played the keynote lecture by Daniel Lopez, Socialism on the Ballot, How the Victorian Socialists Found a Mass Audience. I've also played a session that featured Joe Hendren and Quentin Findlay talking about the political journalist and figure Bruce Jessen. This time around, the session is called We Fight for Roses Too, Art and Socialism, and it features friend of the show Martin Crick, Michael McClelland, who is going to become a friend of the show, and yours truly. The conversation is super wide-ranging. Martin, Michael and I had a couple of conversations via Zoom beforehand, so things were loose at times. But on listening back, what I can hear is a really interesting conversation that covers things like alienation, the extent to which art allows people to speak across points in space and time, and so to develop a kind of solidarity or an intimacy with other people in a natural or built world. Other themes or topics include individualism, collectivism, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, some fighting words about the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Society's aesthetics, right through to the joy of producing art and also the tragedy of art. There really is a whole lot going on, so I hope you enjoy this session, whether or not you attend it in real life. There are a couple of things to know before we get into playing the recording. First up, I did make a little zine to which I refer throughout the talk. That was basically just a list of various resources for those who wanted more. The other thing to note is that the levels are necessarily a bit tricky in this recording, and in particular, the questions at the end are quite quiet. I've chosen to include them because some of the answers I consider to be really valuable and provocative, and I'll also restate the questions when I come back after the recording because they're worth pondering on yourself. So all of that said, I want to say thank you to Martin and Michael and also to James Newey, who was another CSS exec member who cheered and ended up actually featuring in the session. I'll be back in about an hour. Enjoy. Um, so we'll be covering a broad array of topics and concepts relating to all of the arts and, as the blurb said, what it means to be human within those arts and how they also apply to, uh, I guess, the socialist realism, maybe. <laughs> um, and, yeah, within, within each of the panel members, specific areas of expertise. Um, we'll start with Martin. Martin, have you got anything to add? That's off of what I have just talked about. No, the only thing I've got to add is why am I stood up here doing this when you've got a degree in fine art? <laughs> you should be stood up here doing this because uh, you know more about art than I do. Um, okay, so I, I'm going to, as opposed to I think uh, the, the next two, I'm going to be very scattergun in my approach and I'm going to jump around all over the place and uh, uh, probably not too many connections between some of the things I say. But uh, I mean, harking back to when I was growing up, 
which is a long time ago, but, uh, you know, the arts were always sort of presented to me as something over there. They were, it was in galleries and it was in concert halls and it was in sculpture parks. And more often than not, it was something you had to pay to go and see. Uh, and it was high culture, you know. Uh, and, of course, increasingly, we see huge prices being paid for works of art. And, uh, you know, we don't have any access to those pieces of art. They, they, they've got, collectors have got them and they're on their walls or they're even hidden away in vaults as an investment, you know. And I remember um, watching a, a programme once on the TV uh, where they took a group of people from the Biker Estate in Newcastle. So Biker is a very working class uh, estate in Newcastle. Um, and they took them to see the Turner Prize exhibition. Uh, uh, and they took them round. At the end, they asked the people what they thought. And this guy said... It's not art. It's not art to me. I don't understand what this is all about, you know. And that I think emphasised again some of the stuff that, uh, that that I've been brought up thinking. I remember my art teacher said to me, "You can't draw." Yeah. And my music teacher said, "You can't play." In other words, I had no talent, uh, and the arts were just for the talented. And why is it that in education, and I think I'm pretty sure it's the same here as it is in the UK, whenever there's cuts in education, it's always the arts that go first. You know, drama gets cut, art gets cut, music gets cut. Why? Why is that? What is it that says that they're not important or as important as science or technology? Uh, so the, the, that's a couple of questions I've got. You know, who's art for uh, and, and what's it all about? Um, I want to start, so you predicted comfortably, with William Morris, um, who said, I do not want art for the few any more than education for the few or freedom for the few. Uh, and in Morris's view, capitalism diminished the role of art in people's lives and made it the preserve of the rich. Yeah? Uh, and he wanted to see a much wider definition of the arts and art in general than the one I've just uh, talked about. He said art extends itself into every aspect of life, all of human enterprise and expression. Uh, and that derived from his love of nature and also from his view that pleasure in work is essential, that beauty comes from pleasurable work. What is an artist, he said, but a workman who is determined that whatever else happens, his work shall be excellent. And he put it in another way, art is man's expression of his joy in labour. But capitalism, and particularly the division of labour, led to alienation. Capitalism, Morris came to see, transformed art, like every other product of human labour, into a commodity defined not by its aesthetic value, but its exchange value in an exploitative economic system. His understanding of art as an activity intimately interwoven with the conditions of everyday life is, I think, analogous to Marx's materialist conception of culture and his scathing criticisms of wage labour as an institution that alienates workers from their creative capacities and robs them of their personality. So Morris saw art as a way of seeing the world and of intervening in the world and intimately connected with our work and our labour. Uh, and it's not a massive jump from Morris or maybe it is, to Trotsky, uh, who said that uh, artists do not shy away from reality. Art doesn't exist apart from humanity's other activities. It cognises the world and it develops a more complex idea of human personality. And Trotsky also talked about art's fundamental and concretely subversive role in developing the thinking and feeling of the readers or the spectators or the participants and the viewers through a critical examination of what is. So the arts enable us to critically examine what is going on uh, in the world and, you know, uh, and starts us to question things and, make us, and come up with alternatives. 
Uh, and it's not a big leap either from Morris uh, into 20th century avant-garde even. You know, we look at somebody like Mayakovsky who said, the streets are our brushes and the space is our palettes. You know, so art is not something to be tucked away in a, in a gallery somewhere. You know, it should be part of everything we do. But Morris's big message was that human imagination is the key to change. And I think we've had some of that in Lukacs and, uh, and other things as well. You know, it's not enough just to uh, sit here and, uh, and, and be unhappy and say, oh, things are terrible. We, we've got to imagine what, how it could be different. Uh, and that, of course, linked right back into the early working class movement and the, and the demand for the eight hours day. Because the, the demand for an eight hour working day wasn't just so we could have more time to sleep or more time to rest. They wanted more time to be creative and to do things. Hence the phrase bread and roses. You know, and I quite like a, a quote by Emma Goldman where she said, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. If I can't dance, I don't want your revolution. If I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. So, you know, there's some interesting thoughts that I've just sort of scattered in front of you, I think. But if we look at the working class movement, the labour movement, the socialist movement, there's a long history of attempting to create the shell of a new world within the old. You could go right back to the... Uh, levelers and diggers and uh, people in the, in the English Civil War in the 17th century. We can look at the Clarion Movement in the late 19th century in the UK with their drama clubs, their sporting clubs, their cycling clubs, their choirs. Uh, we can look at the Wobblies, and I'm going to say a little bit more about the Wobblies in a minute because I think they're important. We look at the Communist Party in the 30s and 40s with their people's theatre and their people's uh, music and um, Alan Webb and people, Alan Bush, sorry, and people like that. In the 60s, of course, counterculture. We actually thought, no, none of you did, but I did. Um, in the 60s, of course, we, uh, we even believed for a while, for about a whole two years, that music could change the world. Um, but protest songs are part of the movement, you know? To be sung on picket lines, to be sung on demonstrations. The banners of the trade union movement and the socialist parties, you know, why have we got banners? Because they're important, they're a visual expression of what we're about. So... Socialism, I think, is a necessary condition for the arts to flourish. That's what Morris said, Trotsky that I mentioned said, uh, and a couple of quotes at the end that will say the same. Um, and even Jeremy Corbyn, who's already been mentioned today, said, we all have a book, a painting, or music in us. Art should be made by everyone. So a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. So the Wobblies, the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, uh, particularly strong in America in the first um, two decades of the 20th, uh, 20th century, uh, still going today, in fact, enjoying something of a revival. But what was really interesting for me about the Wobblies, apart from their trade union organising, was the role that music in particular, but also art, played in the movement. Yeah, They had a whole range of self-taught artisans, not people who'd been trained in art schools, not people who'd been sort of taken out as talented, self-taught artisans painting, in particular, comic books. They th I think they produced the first revolutionary comic book, Mr. Block, you know, they, they wanted to challenge authority in visually striking ways. So they're the black cats, the black sab, uh, the, you know, from the uh, French working class syndicalist tradition of the sabo, you know, crush the capitalist. They, they produced agitational posters and prints and stickers and murals. The beginning of the sort of public political art that became much more commonplace in the second half of the, uh, uh, of the 20th century, I think. Um, and... In their art and in their poetry and in their songs in particular is the dream of a better society. They parody the existing system repeatedly to expose the truth behind what they call the familiar lies. 
So they have this dream, these self-taught artisans, of being free, both personally as artists and as members of a, a freer humanity in a socialist society. Their songs, if you've not come across any of the Wobbly songs, there's a big, big red songbook. I mean, they wrote hundreds. Um, they're full of dark humour. They're satirical. They used to stand next to the Salvation Army on the streets when the Salvation Army were banging their drums and, and, and talk about the Starvation Army. You know, and the song Pie in the Sky. These guys are offering you pie in the sky. What the bloody hell use is that to us? Yeah, when we're starving down here, we want, we want pie in the here and now. Uh, and Noam Chomsky said they made a unique and remarkable contribution to American culture through their music. And the music was the message, and the message was solidarity. You know, sing together, work together, fight together. On the picket line, in the strikes, on the demos, and so on. And it was also to boost morale. I mean... Anybody who's ever been on picket lines first thing in the morning, everybody who's stood on picket lines, you know, it can be a bloody tough call, you know. And singing, that idea of solidarity, of being together, is really, really important. And the Wobblies were really big on this, on this, on this notion of, you'll hear the new world when the song meets the struggle, they used to say. And Joe Hill, one of their most famous uh, songwriters, said, A pamphlet, no matter how good, is only read once, but a song is learned by heart and repeated over and over and over. And the editors of the first Wobbly Songbook said, Our songbook will exalt the spirit of the rebellion. Words make you think thoughts. Music makes you feel a feeling. But a song makes you feel a thought. Done collectively, it's about shared knowledge. It's about unity. It's about solidarity. Uh, and, you know, I think the Wobblies are really worth, if, if people, those of you haven't come across them before, really worth looking at for that sort of uh, culture. Uh, and we could take their songs and translate that into the protest songs of... You know, uh, of, of the second half of the 20th century as well. Um, I can't remember exactly who said this about protest songs, but they open the door and the world outside rushes in, somebody said. I've already mentioned that for a while in the 60s, you know, we did actually have this sort of vague idea that through music and, uh, uh, and uh, the, the, the world was somehow going to change, you know. I mean, it was a very brief window uh, of the, 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 uh, the decade of uh, flower power and all that. Well, Billy Bragg, and some, some of you I know went to see Billy Bragg last year in, um, uh, in Christchurch. Billy Bragg says, no, music can't change the world. But what it can do is make you believe that the world can be changed. That it, music can change opinions and perspectives. He sees that as what he's trying to do. Change people's opinions, change perspectives. Say something about the times in which we live and make you think about what can we do about it. Uh, and he also made the point that some, sometimes songs can make their way from one era into another. They can speak to another moment in history. Uh, so, inauguration of Barack Obama, uh, where he actually quoted from the Sam Cooke song, the times, you know, it's been a long time coming, the times are going to change. Um, so, and the other thing that Billy Bragg said about all this was that it's not just the music, but it's being in the crowd, it's being a part of something that is a really powerful thing. Yeah, and, and as socialists that want to make us part, make a powerful thing, if you like, bring people to us, you know, we need to organise things that involve music. We've got people in bands, we've got people that uh, make music, we've got people involved in theatre. We need to bring that into the movement as well, because it does give you a feeling that of being a part of something. So I want to close very quickly um, with two quotes, totally off, out of random, as I said, Gramsci. Uh, cultural forms and texts are sites of conflict and negotiation, a realm in which the dominance of ruling interests is subject to challenge and resistance, a means of defining and winning space within the social structure. 
And then Stuart Hall said that culture is one of the places where the unequal but constant struggle between the rich and the great and the poor and the weak takes place. It is one of the places where socialism might be constituted. That's why it matters. And with that, I'll hand over to Mike. All right. Um, there's going to be quite a Trotsky-centric panel by the looks of it, but I don't read too much into it. Um, almost as soon as I volunteered to speak in this panel, I thought, oh shit, art is a big topic. However, in order to perform an exploration of what seems like a dauntingly large and opaque phenomenon, it seems a decent starting point to begin with its most superficial aspect. That is, in order to get at what art means for society in the deepest sense, we might begin with the most basic assumptions that we hold about it. So I'll begin with a very familiar sounding proposition. Art's role is to question society. This sounds familiar? No? Yeah? This, however, could mean many things to many people, which doesn't really clarify very much. So I'm going to flip the equation around. I framed my remarks in the form of a dialogue. Instead of showing you art that questions society, I'll show you society questioning art. In this dialogue, I'll be offering the kind of hypothetical response that art might make to its interlocutor, which will be voiced by James, helpfully over here. Thank you, James. In the form of common sense. So, art versus common sense. This is like performance art. <laughs> 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 I'm going to answer that question with two quotes. The first quote is by Trotsky. A protest against reality, either conscious or unconscious, active or passive, optimistic or pessimistic, always forms part of a really creative piece of work. The second quote is by Lenin, who said, one must always try to be as radical as reality itself. I asked about the world, not reality. Besides, I don't need to know what about reality. It's right there in front of me. Actually, the world is exactly what Lenin and Trotsky are talking about. But they say it in a more precise and nuanced way. Reality here does not mean existence or the physical world or life in the naive sense. These are just concepts that stand in for a totality we can't arrive at an apprehension of without first experiencing its byproducts. They're phenomena that emerge as a consequence of the way society mediates what reality is or can be. All reality, in a sense, is social reality. And you can't have social reality without society, which means capitalist society. Thus, subjective reality is interpenetrated with objective reality. So, in other words, my reality or your reality is interlocked with the reality that is out there, what you call the world. But what does reality have to do with art? How can we protest against reality in order to create interesting art, as Trotsky says, while also being as radical as reality itself, as Lenin says? Yes, these appear to be incompatible propositions. 
In that it appears that Trotsky is suggesting that we defy reality, and that Lenin, on the other hand, is suggesting that we catch up with it. But they're only incompatible insofar as we assume that a successful protest does not itself require meeting its opponent head-on. Likewise, our consciousness, like our art, does not stride ahead of capitalism, but is produced by it, and as such can only try in vain to catch up with it. And what would be the point of catching up to capitalism? To better recognise what it's already doing. And what's it doing? It's producing the world. And what's wrong with that? It doesn't know what it's doing. (laughs) And why is it that? It doesn't know that what it's doing is revolutionary. How's the revolution? It has to tear itself down in order to make itself anew. Uh, Isn't revolution meant to be a good thing for socialists? It is, when it knows what it's doing. And what about when it doesn't know what it's doing? That's a job for art and for politics to solve. Art senses capitalism's cycle that is less creative destruction than destructive creation before politics can. So in order for politics to be as radical as reality itself, art must register that there is something going on, that there is something to be caught up with, and that there is an emergency break, to quote Walter Benjamin, that might be pulled. But surely we already know what the problem of capitalism is. If we did, we wouldn't need art. We could simply do what the Soviet Union tried in the 1930s, and denounce those art forms that do not literally depict our imagined solution to global capitalism. Or we could censor artworks that do not align with progressive values. We could make all art tantamount to speech writing, or else liquidate it all into mere culture. Well then, how do we protest against a reality that we can't see, that we can't verify, and that we seem to have a very difficult time catching up with? We feel. We feel. We feel and then we think. How do we feel? We suffer. What do we suffer from? We suffer from society's unfulfilled potential. Likewise, the art we create hovers between the new and the different and the given and the same. It suffers from a split between essence and appearance, form and content, the qualitative and the quantitative, use value and exchange value. It's a situation born of internal contradictions. An eternally contradictory situation doesn't sound too ideal for art that wants to change the world. Yes, but only if we assume that this unfulfilled potential will remain unfulfilled. If a pile of gunpowder is left outside in the elements, it will either get blown away by the wind or rained on. That sounds like a hopelessly romantic comparison. An artwork can't blow up a building. Neither can gunpowder. Not without a spark, anyway. And so what's the spark? Critique. But that implies that the spark comes from without. But we know that there's plenty of art that itself critiques the world. Well, that depends what art you have in mind. But as far as the best examples of so-called critical artworks are concerned, is it really that they critique the world? Or is it that they raise to a higher level of consciousness that which is already critical about society? What do you mean by critical? Critical is in critical mass, a point of no return, the point where things can only get better or get worse. Crisis, which comes from the old French via the Greek, an illness that can't express its possible overcoming without first being studied for its symptoms. 
critical as in critique? Yes. What does art suggest that we critique then? Social reality, self-contradictory character, and everything that it produces. Art's self-contradiction, my self-contradiction, your self-contradiction, it's all the same self-contradiction. This all sounds very prescriptive. What are the artworks that have no intention of raising the critical category of society? Well, this is why Trotsky says, a protest against reality, either unconscious or conscious, either active or passive, optimistic or pessimistic, always forms part of a really creative piece of work. All artworks contain the potential of realising what is yet unseen about society in crisis. So even the Avengers movie can express the unfulfilled potential of society? Perhaps, but only negatively. <laughs> Doesn't that just make all art equally valid? By that measure, Adam Sandler, the Twilight series, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, would have brought us the revolution right now. Well, this is why it's helpful to distinguish between the avant-garde and kitsch, as Clement Greenberg did. Whereas kitsch kind of museumifies the self-contradictory character of society and treats it kind of like a timeless and inevitable quality of all human life to be put on display, the avant-garde puts it in motion. So in order to avoid becoming the Red Hot we all need to become beat poets wearing Che Guevara t-shirts. <laughs> well, no. That would still be kitsch. We shouldn't limit our consideration of the avant-garde to our pre-existing conceptions of it, precisely because the avant-garde's job, in the purest sense, is to make palpable our experience of the new and the different, even if we don't know what that is. So that means mass culture and low art is ruled out? Well, not necessarily. Kitsch can sometimes be even more avant-garde than uh, the most self-conscious experimental artists. Just look at, um, you know, Sid Barrett or David Lynch or Kanye West. I think Kanye West's avant-garde potential is uh, debatable. <laughs> it is debatable, but its import can't be recognised without critique. Art needs critique in order to stay critical. As the, um, the, the Frankfurt School scholar Susan Buckmorrow said, artists' work is to sustain the critical moment of aesthetic experience. The critic's job is to recognise this. Why do we need critics? Can't we just make art that points out what is wrong with society and let the people make up their own minds? Sure. I mean, you can win the Guinness World Record for, you know, the most Trotskyist album ever made or uh, <laughs> the most realistic Maoist depiction of people's struggles ever. Or maybe you can win an Emmy for the most diverse TV show on Netflix. But none of this guarantees that people will be actually moved by your art. This is why Walter Benjamin says that aesthetic quality must necessarily come before political tendency in art. What moves people then? That's your job as an artist to find out. Thank you. make some really questionable um, stuff on the daily um, and this conversation about the role of art should it be <laughs> democratised is one that I've had before on the radio show incidentally which you can check out um, 
I've suggested the exact episode in your cuisine. Um, but as um, James also said, my background is in literary criticism, so I did a PhD, finished that three years ago. Um, but also I generally love making stuff. The quality of it is not really something that I want to talk about necessarily. Um, but I wish I had more time to just make, um, whether that is making podcasts or zines or poor quality ceramics, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and I find that that sort of creative impetus or making is a way for me to feel really self-consistent. And it's a way that I can mediate between my sort of inner world and the world around me. And so I think those things are really important and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, alienation and the kind of functions of art in those terms. Um, but briefly what I'm going to do is talk about a specific kind of approach to um, the world that comes out of both visual art and literature, and that's magical realism, which is kind of um, the area that I've focused on for a while. I'm going to make some really broad observations after that um, about art and socialism, and mostly I'm interested in setting up the kind of foundation for a discussion, for some questions, and then we can also chat um, when the old bar opens after this as well. Um, so yeah, cool. So um, forgive me for those of you who have seen me talk um, in Wellington or maybe watched a recording of it in the past. I have spoken for socialist societies about the kind of work that I did in relation to magical realism. So I'm just going to praise it really quickly here, just for a, a kind of sense of historical context. But basically, magical realism started as a form of painting, and it kind of emerged in the 1910s, 20s, 30s in the Weimar Republic, so that interwar <laughs> kind of period. Um, and at that time, the dominant mode of visual art was really expressionism, and James is going to be like, wow, we're butchering these like, um, <laughs> you know, terminologies that come to literature in a very mediated way. But the whole idea around expressionism was that, um, you know, painters, painters, artists, were um, exploring emotional conditions, um, rather than necessarily material ones, um, and so thinking about yeah those kind of states. But as, of course, um, historical material conditions became really urgent um, and things changed really rapidly um, in that interwar period particularly, uh, a lot of people decided to kind of break with that tradition of expressionism and start focusing quite explicitly on the actual physical world around them. And so magical realism comes about as a kind of reaction against the emotional stuff that was going on in expressionism and is turned toward the actual material lives of people. And the sense of the people who were engaged in it was that if we actually look really um, intently on the matter that surrounds us, the most mundane, ordinary matter, but the stuff that makes up our lives... Um, it will suggest some stuff on, on the one hand about how it should be read um, and, and when it works and doesn't, but also we might be able to make some observations about you know, a different kind of world we could live in. And so surrealism also kind of did parts of this, um, and it came out at around the same time, but whereas surrealism was really interested in fabricating new realities by putting weird shit together, like, you know, um, magical realism was really about taking quite um, real things um, and just recombining them in a sense. So you would find things like you know, railroads, 
turbines, um, a real focus on cityscapes, machines, all that stuff. And nothing in the composition would be unreal, but it would come to you out of context or um, things would, would be composed in such a way that made it feel unreal or that it um, sort of bespoke another world. And so, for example, yeah, you might have a painting of a turbine and I guess the questions, once you're kind of reading that, is like, what world does this come from? In what sense is this useful? What is the point of it here, just on you know, a very flat-looking pastel background? Um, what use might it be put to? Who works with it? Um, and that kind of stuff. So, um, I've made some real serial killer-looking notes here, like, <laughs> in the break. <laughs> they got, like, increasingly sharpified and, like, big and long, so... I'm just like, you know, read my own writing. So the effect, basically, of magical realism was to say that things that were, um, you know, considered mundane and real, the very kind of core stuff of our reality, could be made to feel unreal. And so in that sense, it was part of, like, defamiliarisation that you might hear through, like, people like Brecht and Clay or whatever, um, to make us think about where our actual world has come from. Um, but also to recombine things in such a way as to rehearse new ways of doing things or ways of being. So people will be really familiar with magical realism, if they are at all, um, as a kind of form of post-colonial writing. And so um, in the kind of uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, it started to emerge in writing predominantly in Latin America. And a lot of people will say, and this is where I want to like talk about what Kieran Dillon mentioned before about the importation of like, um, I guess modes of theory around identity and stuff like that, and we kind of come to that. Um, but people often think about magical realism as um, a protest statement on the on behalf of um, former colonised or formerly colonised populations about you know a reality of theirs that exists against a dominant reality. Um, but it's always framed in like identi identity terms, like people who have been colonised have access to um, magical realities, fantastic realities, things that are unreal um, by virtue of being, you know, not Western or, or European or whatever, and not actually as um, a statement about the kind of material realities that colonisation produces, which can be at times really like um, collage together and quite irrational. Um, and so I would say that, you know, what you find coming through the link, people often debate whether or not the, the painting and literature of magical realism is kind of related. But I think what you see coming through it is a real sense of like the stuff of the art, and this is where we're talking about like form, I think we're going to have a discussion around this later. Um, part of the value of art is not just what ideologically it wants to say about something or its politics, it's actually the form that it either helps us to recognise in the world or creates itself. Um, and so just as, you know, magic realist painting, uh, painters of like the Weimar Republic would pick things like toll booths or, you know, whatever and move them around, so too do we get through Latin America and other kind of post-colonial territories a sense of a focus on like the actual stuff of colonisation, like why do I live in a house that has like all these things that have been imported from you know, weird places or um, in Chile, in the mountains, there are like heaps of 
um, really folky German houses because of all the, all the Nazis who fled, um, and, and the, the kind of weird and, and disruptive feeling that you get from seeing a little gingerbread house against the backdrop of, you know, um, mountains and, and tropical stuff. So, um, actually, that's been its kind of use. What I'll say, I can, you know, I can talk forever about um, formal stuff around magical realism, but what I want to say, what I think is really important about it, um, and what I think is important about the very best of art, um, is that through an attention to specificity in the form of the world that we actually ourselves live in day to day, or the things that surround us, we are able to articulate um, an experience that can be universal because of its specificity, if that makes sense, and gets around this kind of problem of you know, difference and identity and all that kind of stuff, and says, like, we all are subject to particular historical material conditions, and at times that can throw up things that we then observe, and we question, why has this thing come to be here? Why is this house here? You know, why is this coffin um, that I'm burying someone in, in... Um, you know, Danzig slash Gdansk um, in Second World War made out of a margarine crate. And that tells a story about what kind of modes of production or what kind of things were happening at the time. Um, so, yeah, we learn to see that we have things in common or that we depend on others and they depend on us through being really careful about the specific matter that we live with. And so that's, I guess, a kind of... Um, an elegant way to say that form, I think, can matter at times. Um, on this question of um, rethinking about where things come to us from, either artefacts or, you know, that's kind of been a theme through Daniel's talk as well, thinking about our inherited kind of orthodoxies or whatever. Um, what I want to say is that uh, oftentimes, you know, we, we have these really inherited truths about art, and in particular, like the canon. Um, and what constitutes, like, you know, the good art. I mean, I've read, like, literally no Shakespeare. I have a PhD in English, so I don't know. I've managed to avoid it. Um, and yet what I'm going to say is actually being quite pro um, a thing such as a canon, in the sense that having these shared kind of pools of resources or references allows us to have conversations about stuff in a way that is intelligible, um, and we can always critically reflect on what makes it into our canon or our pool of references, our means, whatever we use to communicate and say why are some things overrepresented and others underrepresented or excluded entirely. But the fact that we have a shared frame of reference, I think, is indispensable to the project that we're here for, for socialism. Um, and we have to be really careful that we don't throw out um, some of these things um, that exist too hastily or trash things without thought you know, about whether that's actually useful to us now um, and so some of the other the kind of um, inherited truths that I just wanted to like flag um, to develop our conversation are these ideas that like art is necessarily elitist which I think is um, a real dis does a real disservice to you know, people who have come before us who have either practised art or for whom that has been part of their identity as a whole person, you know, not just a person who does politics and also likes music on the side, um, but to acknowledge that we can be actually quite, like, consistent, full people that appreciate that 
And that's what we're kind of fighting for, right? A world where we don't have to cleave off pieces of ourselves and be the object at work and then the subject at home. Um, and so, you know, that sort of thing. I'll also say that um, I went to Linwood College, which is a pretty, like, hood rat school here in um, Christchurch. And um, very few people went on to university. Um, everyone who did has done, like, quite well and generally they went into the arts and that was a real exit like from or provided tools for people to make to change the circumstances of their lives and I'll just note that like um, after the, the earthquakes um, and then with financial pressures and stuff when um, the kind of board of trustees was sort of suspended at Linwood this whole um, the ministry came in and decided to like basically disestablish all Pro, like all of extra funding around like music, theatre, all this stuff, and say, well, actually, what's going to be useful to these to these kids? Like they're going to need to know like economics and stuff like that, and they just like shut down all these possibilities for these people to actually understand their own lives. You know, just instead to uncritically receive certain things that have been paternalistically given to them to yeah pull themselves up by their bootstraps. That kind of stuff. Um, I also really hate the idea that like the workers can't understand art um, because they're too busy like hammering shit. Um, and, uh, and I really, I really struggle with that, and I think that um, yeah, it's part of art allowing us to know ourselves in all our dimensions. I think to yeah, um, it's just a bugbear of mine. Um, I think other things to be questioned are these kind of myths that art is not worthwhile labour, you know, a kind of vulgar um, perception of art not being work at all, um, or not providing anything to society in the same way that maybe like grains do and stuff like that. I'm not saying we could live on art and not grains, but you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, and also this idea that art exists out of his- outside of historical matter or social relations and isn't part of it, and doesn't reflect it, and you know what can be produced is not constrained by matter and social relations. And that I really, uh, I want to thank Daniel, because I feel like I've gained a new term for that sort of um, assumption about art, which is a kind of contemplative um, state of art being outside of things and not actually part of it. So that was quite good. I felt like through your talk I was able to develop my language around this stuff, so that's great. Or I guess finally that um, art either is always propaganda for capitalism because capitalism tolerates its existence and so therefore it becomes like a barometer of how good our society is because you've got a creative New Zealand run to make something. Um, or <laughs> Hey, I mean, hold baby, we're trying to get some money. <laughs> Second DP. But yeah, or either if it's not propaganda for the state, um, that could be you know propaganda for us. I don't know. I think that's just again a really reductive kind of approach to art. What I'll say is that I think um, art is dialectical. Uh, it doesn't stand in for material conditions, but it's part of them. And what we do with art also reflects back into what then becomes possible with you know the sum of all the stuff that exists in the world it can open up or foreclose new worlds and possibilities, and that's its value. Um, yeah. Also, I kind of wanted to think a little bit, you know, we sort of <coughs> talked about approaching this 
like chronologically, um, Martin would start with William Morris, we'd move through like avant-garde, we'd come to some sort of like contemporary time, and then I thought, oh, let's think about, you know, what art would be like under socialism. Would it exist, or would we all be like, I don't know, doing more useful things than making scenes? I hope not. Um, but what I want to say is that, you know, as much as we can talk about what things might be like under any kind of socialism in the future, I really highly doubt that questions about self and other and self and the world, the natural world, our environment, are going to evaporate. Um, we would still have you know, relatively more local or relatively more global relationships to other people. Our social relations will always be kind of transforming as we need them to, and so those are always going to need to be interrogated. Um, I also think, um, as I said, that where I kind of started this off with, um, I think to be able to know yourself through the way that you do stuff in art or creatively, and when I say art this whole time, I'm just talking about creative practice, really, whatever you choose to do. Um, to do that is to feel really connected, again, as I say, to others, to yourself, to the stuff that you work with all the time, like to have some agency over things, to be able to shape it, Understanding that it has particular material, you know, uh, qualities and limitations and restraints. There's only so much I can do with paper versus, and you know, vivid versus some steel and a laser cutter or whatever. But that, you know, gives us a sense of intimacy with the things that we live with every day as well. And you know, again, I guess that's formal. How we can, how pliable are they? What can we do with them? There's a sense of curiosity there. And even beyond all of that. I think art will continue to exist because it's fun, and that's the whole thing, right? We, I was, you know, glad when Martin talked about like what was the purpose of the eight-hour day—not just to sleep, you know, but also to be able to just dedicate your things, your time to things that bring you joy. Um, and so, for that reason, I think, yeah, I'm still going to be making zines, baby, and making <laughs> weird poems um, and stuff, and you know, it will be great. As a little final, final kind of sign-off, like in this wee zine that I've made, there's some questions in the back. There's some recommendations of like resources that you can check out. I haven't checked out all of them. Most of them came from Michael, and he has like a really exhaustive list. So if you want recommendations, I'm, a, I'm certainly going to be asking for re reviews for the radio show from now. <laughs> um, but there's a couple of just like general questions that you might like to just keep in the back of your mind as you go through the next you know few weeks or whatever. But some other ones that I thought might be interesting, particularly because I'm into literature, are like, you know, I think we still have genres, right? But how would crime be different if we didn't really have police? What is the procedural? <laughs> this is like a real change of mind, but this is what I'm interested in. Like, you know, how will romance continue to change as our understandings of, like, gender and sex and sexuality become more sophisticated and nuanced and stuff like that. We're always, all the time, reacting to changes, and that's really interesting. It's also, in some way, in line with the dialectical argument, a little bit presumptuous to talk about art in the future because it will be responding to conditions that, that we aren't able yet to think. But let us get there. <laughs> so thank you. guys to like ask each other questions maybe but I think that we'll be able to do that by just opening it up to everyone so yeah whoever has questions 
it's hard to see Nick, your first second there. Yeah. Um, this was one for Michael, and you were talking about um, well, Shannon just then, anyway, out and talked about music under a socialist society. What would the Red Hot Chili Peppers be like underneath the socialist society? <laughs> Are we talking like a Red Hot Commune of Paris? <laughs> Red Hot Republic, uh, Red Hot Republic Redemption. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Would a band, would 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 a, would a band consisting of like rap, rock, funky monks like flourish in you know a social society? I, I well, you know, like I tend to take a naive approach to thinking about what the potentials and possibilities might be of a future socialist society because. Presumably, if uh, capitalist reality is already um, proceeding at a pace that we struggle to catch up with in our consciousness, which lags behind it, um, you would imagine that a world beyond capitalism, too, would require a way of thinking that we don't currently possess, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, like I, I'm not actually sure what art would look like, um, I presume it would still exist in some way, but it would probably have a very different um, function from how we currently think about it. You know, we couldn't imagine what it would look like. Um, and uh, you know, like there's a need for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, as much as I'm loathe to say it. Like people pay money to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and that means that in a future society, if that music makes sense to people and it moves people, they will still want to go watch that shit. I mean, <laughs> thank you for answering my stupid. <laughs> No offense to any chili fans in the room. Yeah, the, the two questions actually, they're both short. Uh, both, both, both for Mike as well, sorry. So you, you used the phrase mere culture. I think it was in the context that we could, if you the Soviet Union, why not look at the art and mere culture? So what's the difference between art and mere culture? And the second question is are the aesthetics of the New Zealand Federation of Social Society? <laughs> well, I've already had my I've already had my, my debate with James tonight. We're gonna have to like surf around two with my debate with Nick about uh, whether or not his, he's gonna to save the pro. And I'm gonna, no, uh, I think for, for the record, I think I think Nick's graphic design is great, and I have no problem with the aesthetics of the society. Not that I'm a judge of good art, by the way. Um, but. <laughs> that's that's for you to, to figure out. That's for that's for the critics of the world to determine. Um, but with respect to the question of um, art versus mere culture, that is a good question, and I framed it deliberately because we need to consider how art stands apart from other cultural productions, other cultural formations. Um, Taking, for example, like, not to do a deep dive on Hegel, but his kind of idea of, like, how freedom expresses itself historically. He goes, like, religion, art, philosophy. So first there's, like, religion as a way of humanity, like, objectifying or externalising its consciousness about itself, but, you know, giving it, like, an expression in terms of, like, I don't know, like, um, sacred rites and rituals, um, you know, holy doctrines and um, church leaders and whatever else. Then the next epoch of freedom for Hegel is manifested in terms of um, kind of uh, an aesthetic 
uh, way of being, like a morality that does not necessarily require being um, dictated by the church. So it kind of stands apart and creates a separate new necessary definition, if that makes sense. And then finally, you've got this kind of epoch of philosophy, wherein you need philosophy in order to understand human practice. You need philosophy, theory, art history, critique, um, whatever else, in order to understand what it is that art is already doing. So by that, I would say that the issue with thinking about art in terms of culture um, is that, like, you know, I, I did media studies, right? Like, we just, like, uh, the university amalgamated the communication streams with the media studies streams, streams with the film studies streams, which are already very quite dominated by cultural studies. It's kind of like, you know, 1970s, 1980s kind of stuff from coming out of Britain um, and elsewhere. That is very all about trying to think about, like, film is like just another form of media or just another form of communication. It's just like a mode, it's just like another aspect, another strain or something that already dominates. But what if it's not? What if there is an emergent quality that comes out from that? And what if that emergent quality expresses something about the self-contradictory character of society in general? And by understanding that, via philosophy, via critique, via history, via art theory, whatever else, we can understand what art is doing and what it is registering through the faculty of feeling, if that makes sense. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. One really quick comment that question. Um, I just really agree with what Shannon said about the canon. Like, um, you know, I teach a second year with the philosophy course and we do play though. And like, you know, old rank was okay with the slaves. You know, not cool. Like, he was aristocratic. But like, bring it in. It's working class kids that I'm teaching. And play don't teach us you how to be free. So why would we throw this away? And, you know, and I so you started on how pro Huckleberry Finn I've become this. Day. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and, you know, there's, the problem with Western Catch all of it, um, uh, Daniel. Sorry, that's why I was leaning forward. I, I couldn't quite hear uh, bits of it. So, you want to do you want to repeat it, please? Yeah, I wonder if there's like I, I absolutely agree that art can tell us a lot about capitalism, and that we have to read art in terms of its its social historical functions. Obviously, you, know, you can't read the Divine Comedy without knowing about the Catholic Church, you know. Um, but then I think you know my feeling is some of the most moving art, um, you know, can come across kind of place. So to me, that suggests. There's an essence to art, or a purpose to art that goes beyond like an immediate historical time and place. And you know, I wonder what you guys think. You agree? I think it's. Well, but, no. Yeah, there you go. Well, I've got a very short answer to that, which is yes, uh, because I think it goes back to, to what Morris was saying about pleasure in labour. So, art is the things you're talking about, they got pleasure in the making of those, which sits outside the actual 
historical reality of the conditions or whatever that they're working in, you know. And so, yes, it. I, I think yes, it does transcend time and place definitely. I um, and that the issue is that in capitalist society, it's uh, you know by and large, it's only a, a, a small number of people that, that have the time and the space to be able to enjoy that sort of and produce those things and, and get that pleasure out of their work. But yes, I, I would agree with you. Yeah. Definitely, and that's pretty much what I was going to sort of maybe say as well is that like you know it's very tricky to get into any kind of like questions around like nature and stuff like that but you know in thinking about what Marx says about like our kind of like species being and like what what we are and what we do and how we express ourselves through actioning like you know through our agency in the world and our you know desire to create and produce and make and affect the world I think that is what we um, apprehend in things across time, um, that sort of statement of existence against, you know, coming up against the stuff of the world, um, that's what we appreciate, that's maybe the essence that makes us feel bound to other people, you know, beyond particular historical material conditions, which is much, I think, the same as what Martin was saying. Um, I want to um, refer here to like three, you might call it canonical texts. Um, you know, Kant's Critique of Judgment, um, Schiller's Letters Upon the Aesthetic Educational Plan, and Hegel's, um, I forget the title, was it Lectures on Aesthetics? Um, anyway, for Kant, you know, like the three, if there were like three essential sources of, you know, pleasure of gratification to the mind aesthetically, it would be like teleological beings, which just means like creative humans, um, beautiful objects, and, subli- and sublime forces. And all three, there are these qualities of them being kind of like, um, bound up within themselves, or you might say autonomous. Um, they are not like determined by anything else. They seem to appear to us fully formed, and we rely on that. And Schiller kind of echoes that, and Hegel kind of does it as well, maybe putting a spin on it that like, you know, that's uh, our knowledge of that is mediated somewhat. So we're talking about feeling, right? Like, how do we feel about things in the world? And then also, how do we intuit that? Like, how do we um, turn that into like a reasoning process where we reason about what we've just experienced? Now, the problem is that capitalism arrives, and it appears all of a sudden that our relationship to the world is all the more constrained by the fact that um, we, like our we, our relationship to beautiful objects, teleological beings, and sublime forces are mediated by the principle of exchange and the possibility of all things becoming commodified. Um, however, I think I want to push back about against the idea that. Um, thinking of an essential um, kind of quality or pleasure in art is in fact unfreeing in as far as we possess the capacity to find beauty in things that are not charming, that are not pleasurable, that are in fact disgusting. We find ways of reasoning and turning those kind of feelings into something higher. That's what Baudelaire's poetry is all about. You know, he's writing poems about like um, you know the the wicked depravity of the city and how he finds it great. He's literally got a poem that's called "Get Drunk," you know, <laughs> and it's uh, it's really good, it's really short. Um, that would be the whole modernism thing, and like I think I'll leave it there without getting into what modernism is and, and all the rest. But like there is liberating potential in that that we can change what we find beautiful, and that is the essential quality, perhaps. Yeah. So so um, so the idea of like pleasure and work. Trotsky, I think, in the literature and revolution says art will continue because of tragedy, which kind of relates to what you're saying. So that's the essential, like, continuity, you know, in what makes art. Mm. What do you think he means by tragedy? 
I think tragedy, uh, 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 why tragedy? Like, it's a human condition, it's part of the human condition, which maybe is like our relationship with the material world, like, which is, you know, we're always separate, but we're going to become part of that again, whatever, I don't know. We're going to die. I don't there's know. There's still going to be more breakups, baby. There's still going to be people who get dumped. There's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's still going to be tragic stuff. Yeah. So we're going to finish the session on the arts and socialism. We're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
song Manifestio, or Manifesto, by the Chilean songwriter Victor Yara, and it was the last song that he wrote before his murder during the 1973 Chilean military coup. That song was selected for you by Martin Crick, who appeared in that Art and Socialism, We Fight for Roses 2 panel. I've also asked Michael to select a song, and you'll hear that later, and then I'll be selecting one for you right at the end. But right now, a couple of very quick resource reviews. I must say that there's a little bit of getting used to the new time slot, so bear with me as I figure out how this show is going to work going forward. But resource reviews. First up, it's the 2018 three-part BBC television series The Long Song, which is based on a 2010 novel of the same name by the Jamaican-English author Andrea Levy. The Long Song is set in colonial Jamaica, And it's a memoir, really. The main character, July, or Marguerite, as her slave owner calls her, is taken from her mother as a very small child and grows up as a kind of handmaiden on a sugarcane plantation. The show follows various slave uprisings and also the statutory outlawing of slavery in the British Empire, which, as I've spoken about on the show before, didn't really end slavery. In fact, Some of the main drama of the long song comes when a young Robert Goodwin arrives on the plantation as an overseer, at first very firm in his convictions against slavery. He actually enters into a relationship with July and they end up having a child, but the pressures of class and capital see that child taken from July as she was from her own mother. I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but there is another child. And it's through a reunion with him that July ends up recounting her story. I'm not sure how true the television series, The Long Song, is to the historical novel, so I'd be interested to read it. But I absolutely recommend the TV series nonetheless. It's quite lush, if a little exotic. And though you might be familiar with stories of colonialism, slavery, racism in the early 19th century, don't let that put you off. I'm going to give The Long Song three and a half red stars. Moving on quickly, the second resource review relates to the Working Class History Map, which you can find at map.workingclasshistory.com. In a past episode of The End of History, one of the resource reviews submitted by a listener was about a particular episode of the Working Class History podcast, which I recommend too. But actually, the people behind that podcast have a whole lot of information available to people about working class history, and this particular map is one such resource. Basically, it's a virtual map of the world with a whole bunch of little pinpoints all over it. And if you click on them, each pinpoint will tell you something of working class politics in that location. As the blurb for the map says, history isn't made by kings and politicians, it's made by us billions of ordinary people. 
This is a map containing our always growing archive of stories of our collective struggles to build a better world. What I'll do is I'm going to click on one of the dots at random now, just to give you a sense of what kind of things you might discover. I've just clicked on the Funkel hospital strike, and it says on the 30th of June 2022, health workers in Funkal Madeira walked out on strike. Technicians, pharmacists and logistic workers in the Sindicato de Administracio Publica Union were among those who walked out, demanding a pay increase amidst rising prices. So there's a whole range of political activities and struggles that you can discover on this working class history map, some fairly recent, some more historical. As its makers say, this map is a testament to the tradition of collective struggle for a better world, and so I give it five red stars. Okay, time now for another song, and this one was selected by Michael McClelland. The song is Shiver of the 1984 album Shiver by the Swedish singer and record producer Vienna Lindt. Enjoy. Oh, 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 oh,
That was the song Shiver by Verna Lindt, and it was selected for you by Michael McClelland. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, so earlier in this episode, I mentioned that this year, and thanks to our longer time slot, I'd be including some special segments, and here's the first one of those. I haven't really got a name for this segment, but what I've done is I've asked all of the executive members of the Canterbury Socialist Society to do a wee voice recording, around three minutes or so. I've asked them to introduce themselves, to tell me why they wanted to be part of the CSS executive, and also to tell me a bit about the issues that matter to them, why they're a socialist, basically. I'm going to play those recordings over the next few episodes. For now, here's executive member Courtney Fraser. Thanks so much, Courtney. Kia ora, ko Courtney Toko Ingoa. My name is Court. I've been born and raised in Ōtutahi. I joined the CSS Exec in 2022. When I actually became a member, I don't know. I'm sure there's some kind of record which records that, but I guess I don't remember exactly because I'd been in and out of um, sort of CSS events um, since probably 2018. Uh, so I worked with another member of the CSS exec and, you know, we would have chats and she would say, oh, court, there's this, you know, there's this talk happening, there's pizza and beer because obviously we host some meetings at Space Academy and I was always, at the start it was, you had me at pizza and beer. But sort of as I continued to go more um, and then I would have more discussions with people, I would kind of have a moan about, like, you know, the state of, like, my working life and all these sorts of things I thought was unfair. And then, you know, I kind of discovered that uh, maybe maybe I don't like capitalism. And, uh, you know, the consensus was, have you tried socialism? So that's sort of my journey so far. Um, my motivation for wanting to join the exec was actually I wanted to be more involved and I wanted to learn more, but kind of force myself to do it by <laughs> signing up to the exec. So that was successful. And I'm also kind of lazy, but that also means I'm efficient. So instead of making, like going out of my way to gain more understanding about uh, several different concepts, um, I threw around the idea of hosting a socialism for dummies event, whereby me, the dummy, would kind of have a between two ferns kind of conversation with a sort of expert of sorts where I could ask all my dumb questions because I'm too lazy to find the answers myself and uh, that event was uh, wildly successful we had like a huge turnout um, we had a lot of people submit um, their own sort of dumb well not dumb questions but their own questions that they've always wanted to ask and it was great and I learned a lot and that has um, also kind of sparked my own avenues of like interest into several different areas um, I've sort of been inspired to become more active in my community about things that um, affect me or I care about. And also it's, it's super empowering to know that there's no barrier to doing that. You can, you can just do it. You go be out in your community, advocate things you care about. So that's sort of why I'm here. Um, I hope to continue my journey into this area of development. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's it from me, signing out. Kakite. Thank you so much, Courtney, for taking the time to give us your story, or at least a wee bit of it. I'm sure people will appreciate hearing it. 
And there'll be more stories like that from other members of the CSS executive as we knock down these first few months of 2024. So look, I'm wrapping things up now. I must say I'm doing pretty good for time. Just before I go and before I send you on your way with a song chosen by moi, I want to say a few words about CSS events. So the CSS has a kind of program of events. It stays roughly the same so that we know what to expect. On the second Wednesday of each month, we host an educational event, usually at Space Academy in St. Asif Street, usually 6.30 for a 7pm start. Our educational events can be anything from a lecture to a discussion panel. Occasionally it might be a film screening, a whole range of things. And I'm glad actually that Courtney mentioned that Socialism for Dummies event that she pioneered because our first event for 2024, which will be held on Valentine's night, February the 14th, is going to be another sort of 101 style event, but this time it's going to be all about colonialism. There'll be a Facebook event live soon, so if you're interested in that, check out the Canterbury Socialist Society on Facebook or Instagram, or again head to socialistsocieties.org.nz. There's a whole lot of information there. Looking ahead to March... March the 8th is International Women's Day, so we always run a feminist-style event in March. We'll also be running some writing workshops in March. And I just found out today that a special international guest who we have hosted before is likely to be back in the country in the next few weeks too. So it looks like we'll be offering a bonus event on top of what we would normally offer anyway. As well as the educational events that we run, the CSS gathers on the fourth Friday of every month, usually around 5pm, usually at somewhere like Pomeroy's, but the venue does change. And we gather for a more social style event. We like to say we put the social back in socialism. We have a couple of beers, we have some chips, and we talk about things in a more free-flowing way. It's also a really good opportunity to build relationships with others in the society. So again, I'm not going to give all the details right now. What I am going to say is, if this sounds like something that you might want to be part of, please do look for Canterbury Socialist Society on your social of choice. Flick us an email, visit the socialistsocieties.org.nz website. We'd love you to come along. There's a whole lot of stuff that we do beyond that, but I guess I'll come back to some of that stuff next month. Because this is me wrapping up the first episode of The End of History for 2024. I'm going to send you away with a third and final song. This is from Her to Eternity by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. The song was actually released in 1984, but I'm playing you a live version, uh, which featured in the 1987 film Wings of Desire by Vim Vendors. Thanks to everyone who's helped make this episode happen. Lucas, Martin, Michael, James, Courtney. Until next time, ka kite anō. One more song and it's over. But I'm not gonna tell you about a girl. I'm not gonna tell you about a girl. I wanna tell you about a girl. You know, she lives in room 29. I'm not
knowing my sound of soul And I can hear all smelling colors and sound I ever heard I want to cry Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.